0: Good morning, everybody. They've given me two mics today, to, in case, but I don't usually handle this one very well. Well, this is the third in a series of messages I want to bring. The first two I was able to bring in uh, in July, a fair fair while ago. So um, to remind you as to uh, where we were, especially for those who uh, who weren't were remembering. I, I'm bringing a word which I believe is, uh, is not just a word for North Church, it's a word for the church as a whole. I believe God has a plan not just for individual Christians like you and me, he certainly has a, a plan for you and he has a plan for me, but I believe he has a plan for the church as a whole, he has a plan for nations, he has a plan for lots of many groups. And I believe we are living in days um, where... Um, We are living extraordinary days. Uh, So the first message I brought uh, was called, the general topic I'm bringing is uh, that God is demanding a holy church. And the context I spoke of at that time was that God is actually at the moment, I believe, doing uh, substantially a new thing, a dramatically new thing in our world. Essentially, I believe that he is overturning powers in the world that have been established for hundreds of years Um, I believe that, uh, taught now, especially to those young people here, I believe that when you are mature people, when you are old, like I am, the world will be a substantially different place than it is today, and you are going to need to learn how to live in that world. Uh, In particular, I believe that the Western nations, Australia, America, Britain, Western Europe, will no longer be the most powerful and influential nations in the world, and Christianity, which has been supported over the years in these nations as being uh, the the supported religion, will no longer be in that state. So you are going to have to learn to live for God in a world which is going to be more hostile and less receptive than it is today. And that is why God is calling um, for a holy church, because only those who commit themselves properly to God and learn how to live in in, in the sort of world that uh, is basically a reversion to what it was like in the first three centuries, right? Where, if you know anything about your history, when, that when the church was first founded, it is only as the church becomes holy and lives in a, in a, in a correct way before God um, that we will survive over those over that period. So God is calling now. I feel a bit like a John the Baptist figure, um, that uh, calling people to a turn, uh, in advance, because God is actually planning a great thing that He is doing—a uh, clarion call of what God is planning to do—and we need to respond to that in advance; otherwise, we may miss out. So that was the first message. Second message, I, I said, well, I went straight to the—I guess for the for the for the jugular vein. And I said that the main problem that we see in the church today—and again, I say this is in the church broadly, not this church. This church is a very good church, and I'm grateful to be a part of it—and and uh, for Pastor Lee and all of the people who who reign it. But in, in the church as a whole, especially in the Western world, there's a huge problem with idolatry, with people serving their own picture of what God is and calling it the Christian God. And we need to understand that that is a problem, it is a far more serious problem than, the others, than many of the other problems that Christians focus on. And it is only as we actually learn to deal with that problem and face up to it, that we will actually live the holy life that God is calling us to. So let's pray as we come now into this uh, third message. Heavenly Father, you have said in your scriptures that your word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that that word might be activated in our hearts today, Father. That it pierce between the joints of bone and marrow. That it pierce between spirit and soul because we know that it's only as you go deep into our hearts that we, be, that we can be changed to be the sort of people that you require us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to start today by asking the question, when Moses encountered idolatry in the book of Exodus, how did he respond? What are we supposed to do? Are we simply to sit there and complain about the fact that, the, that the, there is idolatry in the church? What did Moses do? And so we turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 33, which is there on the screen. And I want to just, before I read these scriptures out, I want to explain the context. So God had given through Moses the Ten Commandments, and people had seen this amazing vision of God uh, speaking to his people on, the, on Mount Sinai. But the people had turned to idolatry. They'd made a sacred animal, a golden calf, which they then said, this is Jehovah, this is the Lord. They hadn't said this is a foreign God. They said, this is actually the Lord. They made an image of what they thought God was like, and they debased his image by making an image in the form of a calf. Now, we know that God is far, far greater than the simple brute animal. And God was angry with them. And God expressed his anger towards his people and towards Moses. And this is what happened. So we're now reading from Exodus chapter 33. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people who brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Now, the first thing we need to know before I go on, before we look at Moses' reaction, we need to know what God's reaction was, because it's an amazing reaction. God said, I will fulfil my promise to you. I will give you, in spite of your idolatry, I will give you everything I promised, but I will not go with you. But if I went with you, with you in this idolatrous state, I might actually destroy you, and that wouldn't be very good. So you'll get the promises, but you won't get me. Now, isn't that an amazing, scary thing? That's what God said. So then we see Moses' response. Now, Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go up to the tent of meeting outside the camp, So again, just briefly interspersing a comment here. Moses' first reaction was to go outside the camp. Outside the camp. Now, by that, we need to understand that that's a metaphor. He wasn't separating himself completely from the people because, as we can see, the people, if they wanted to come to God, could still come to him. He was still fellowshipping with the people. But the metaphor is that he decided to set his direction in his life differently to the way the other people were setting The first thing I want to say is that in these days, that is the attitude that we as Christians need to have. We need to be willing to go outside the camp, not separating ourselves from Christians and saying, I'm better than you and I'm not going to have anything to do with you, but simply saying, I am going to go in a direction that I believe is the right direction. I'm not going to follow the pack because there is sin in the camp and we need to go outside the camp to find God. So we go to the next sheet. Continue on. (laughs) Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? How else, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses says, Show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. The message I want to bring today is simply this, that our response has got to be the same as what Moses has got. We've got to go to God and say, show me your glory. We have to seek God's glory, no matter what the cost, and we need to live for God's glory. We must seek God's glory, whatever the cost, and live for it. So what is this glory? It's, um, the word glory, according to the dictionary, simply means fame, praise, or honour that is given to someone because they have achieved something important. Now, in the case of God, he is, by his very nature, glorious, right? So to see God, to reveal God's glory is simply to reveal him as he really is. So it's the opposite of what I said idolatry was. Remember, idolatry was where people formed their own image of God and established it and decided that they were going to worship that as God Glory is the opposite. The glory of God is simply revealing God, seeing God and revealing God for who He is, and allowing others to see that in our lives. Now in the Old Testament, um, the, uh, there's, if we go to the next, yeah, in, the, in, the next uh, yeah, in, in the Old Testament, if we go, uh, the Bible has a little to say about, uh, about glory. It's first of all associated with the ark of His presence, right? So uh, here we, in the story, here we have Moses uh, going, setting his his uh, his his, uh, his tent outside the camp and, and meeting with God. We also read about the pillar of fire and the cloud that uh, that showed the glory as they came out of Egypt. Um, we also read about uh, in the, in the days when the glory of God filled the tabernacle in two Chronicles, uh, so that no one was able to stand in the presence of God. Now, these are all metaphors, of course, very strong metaphors. And what they talk about is a situation where God's revealed presence is so strong that it has an immediate and profound impact upon people's situations. I'd like to draw the picture, if you can imagine, that we're living in this world and that there's a curtain behind us, a curtain between us and the heavenly realms where God lives. And every once in a while somebody pulls back the curtain just a tiny way and you catch a glimpse of what's behind the curtain. And as soon as that curtain gets drawn back, you see this blazing light which is totally blinding, which makes you fall on your feet in wonder. That's what it's like in the Old Testament when the glory of God is revealed because if we all saw God for who he really is, then it would be completely and utterly overwhelming because God is Immensely glorious. Now, when we move on to the New Testament, it's considerably simpler and more profound because Jesus is the definition of God's glory. He is the revelation of God, the full revelation of who God is and what he is like. We read in John 1.14 that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then John goes on to say this, he says, and we have seen his glory. The wonder in those words is, is palpable. We have seen his glory. If you've seen Jesus, if you've encountered Jesus, you've encountered the glory of God. You'll notice, if we, uh, if we go back to the verse um, where Moses asked to see God's glory, that God's glory is associated, and I found this rather interesting when I noticed it, with the concept of goodness. Notice what it said there, that that Moses said to God, show me your glory, and God's response was to say, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. That theme is there many, many times in the scripture. So what's the link here? Well, here's an interesting thing, right? Goodness is really, when it boils down to it, it's a combination of justice and mercy, right? Now, justice is giving people... What they deserve, isn't it? And mercy is not giving people what they deserve. You see, there's a paradox. There's a conflict. It is the it is how you resolve that conflict that makes you good. If you're always giving out justice, right, then you're a cold-hearted person. You might be a good, you might be a righteous person, but no one ever calls you good. It's cold-hearted. It's dark. It's Nobody likes to see somebody who's always abiding by the letter of the law. But if all you ever do is hand out mercy, you never hand out justice, then that's actually unjust, isn't it? Imagine if you went to court and every time a a criminal goes to court, the judge says, I'll be merciful and let you off. That wouldn't be just, would it? There's got to be a mixture of mercy and justice to have true goodness. Goodness. And here's the thing, right? How we mix justice and mercy together defines our character. If we are people that believe in God, whether we're religious or not. Consider the two groups in the New Testament. Think about this. The Pharisees compared with Jesus. Both religious people. The Pharisees we know, or the group of the Pharisees that are mentioned in the New Testament, it wasn't all the Pharisees, but they were renowned or being religious in the worst possible way, right? But how did they combine justice and mercy? Well, they were extremely just, letter of law just towards the sinners. They said, the woman caught in adultery, stoner. The person that doesn't pay his tithes, sinner. Tax gatherers have nothing to do with them. Don't even eat with the sinners. But they were extremely merciful to their own. Jesus was merciful to the sinners, but when he dealt with people who were hard-hearted religious folk, that's when he emitted out strict justice. How you mix mercy and justice defines the sort of person you are. What about the cost? I talked earlier about we must seek God's glory whatever the cost. What do I mean by that? Well, in our text, God tells Moses what he's talking about when he says simply this, no one may see me and live. You cannot see my face because no one will see me and live. There is a cost a very deep personal cost involved with seeking God's glory and finding it. What do I mean by that? Do I mean that if we seek God's glory that we're going to be struck down dead? Well, no, I'm not saying that. But there are metaphorical deaths, shall we say, that have to happen when you encounter God's glory. Because what happens is when you encounter God in his glory... In his goodness, things change, and your life demands a change. Let me tell my own story, so you can understand where I'm coming from here. Back in 1979, which is a lot longer than I care to remember, and longer than many of you have been alive, but I was an 18-year-old, and I was a Christian. I believed I was a Christian. I wanted God, and I came from a. You gotta understand? I came from a background that was very unemotional. My parents unemotional type people. They'd been brought up in England in the war and, and that t- tended to have a habit of drying out the emotions of that generation of people. It was one of the costs that they paid for the war. And so I, I grew up in a very unemotional environment and it turned out that um, I also, as, as we later found out, have, have, um, have an autism spectrum uh, disorder which means that I don't cope well with emotions. So I lived in an environment where I didn't have many deep emotional uh, relationships. Relationships to me were very functional. Uh, do this and, you know, like people, treat people like slot machines. If you do this, they'll respond in that way. Uh, and personal relationships weren't that important to me, but I was seeking God. And over a period of time, God stripped me back until one day he stripped me back far enough. And in a split second, he came into my heart in a way which was totally unexpected, totally profound, and totally life-changing. Suddenly, for the first time in my life, I was aware that God was not a he out there that I believed in, but he was a you inside me, someone that I knew personally. And what happened at that time was that I was absolutely overwhelmed by the love of God. And I say overwhelmed because the love of God was what I discovered was not just an intellectual, um, passive-type thing. It was totally passionate. It was totally unstoppable. It was totally life-changing, and it demanded that I pass that on to everybody. I didn't know how to do that well, but as soon as I encountered God in his love, I realised that I was not going to be able to live my life the same that life for me was going to have to change because I had to live up to what I, had, what I had experienced. And In fact, it's fair to say that the last 40 years of my life have been me trying to play catch-up with the great revelation that God gave me uh, at that point. And so that, I think, is, is, is what I'm saying, that when you encounter God in that way, things change things that you previously thought were okay are no longer okay the way you lived your life demand is demanded to be changed by God because you've encountered him and you now have to live up to what he has done it will cost you something so we need to seek God's glory whatever the cost so how do we go about this how do we live for God's glory Here's a few thoughts I want to suggest. If you bring up the first point there, yeah. What I'm suggesting here is the world of glory lies beyond sin and into the realm of consecration. Now what I mean by this, I want you to take this idea on board that when you're a new Christian, <clears throat> when you're a young Christian, it's like there's a struggle goes on in you between sin and righteousness. You want to please God, you've, you've, you've given your life to Jesus, but there's still a lot of things in your life which you struggle with. You know, will I or won't I do this? You know, it, it might be you know, uh, your human relationships, it might be money. There might be a lot of things that, you know, that God still has to deal with in your heart. And so you're allowing into your heart. But there comes a point <clears throat> where you suddenly realise that sin is no longer a valid option for you. I'm not saying that you don't sin but you, where you've actually made the decision that you don't want to sin. Do the so I'm not saying that you come to a point where, where you never do anything. There's many reasons why we do the wrong thing. But there comes a point where, where you realise, I'm just not interested in sin anymore. I don't want to do things which are wrong. I really want to do the things that are right. And when you reach that point, you reach beyond what I'm calling beyond the world of sin and you're into the realm of consecration. Consecration is when you devote your life to God and you say, I don't want to sin anymore. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I want to do what God wants me to do. And you consecrate your life to Him. And that's where living for the glory of God starts. Now the next point is, wait for it. When you reach that point, how are we to live? The answer is simple. But extremely profound. We have to live a life that is simply, simply summed up as doing good. Now remember what we said about goodness. Goodness is about mixing justice and mercy. So it's very important. I mean, it says in Ephesians 2:10 that God has a world, that there's a, a whole realm of good deeds that God has planned for you and I to do. Now, what God has planned for you. Is totally different from what's planned for me because we live in different worlds, we have different personalities, we have different characters, different gifts. Everything about us is different. But what is common to all of us is that there is a realm of good works that God has for you to do and He's pre planned for you to walk in those, whatever they are. So you move beyond the realm of sin and you say, I'm going to do good. I'm going to wake up every morning and I'm going to say, I have a world of good deeds to do today. Who am I going to bless? And when we get to that point, we go to the next point, we've got to remember the the starting point. Let's not follow the religious pack. Let's be prepared to go outside the camp and be like Jesus. What I mean there is that we need to make sure that the way we express goodness is the way that God expressed goodness, which is to consecrate yourself to God first and do good to people, especially the weak, the vulnerable, the needy, because they're the people that God expresses his love to primarily. Now, it's rather interesting concept, right? If you read through the Old Testament in particular, and the New Testament follows this plan as well, we see that God is on the side of the weak and the vulnerable. That's always God's plan. It's always God's priority. But how can that be? Because justice is supposed to be blind. I want to suggest that we need to understand justice slightly differently to the way we often do. We tend, in our Western tradition, to think of justice in terms of criminal matters, criminal justice. And of course the thing is, criminal justice is blind. A person who sins, who commits a crime, needs to face punishment, regardless of whether they're poor or whether they're rich. That's one of the fundamental principles of justice. In fact, the Old Testament actually spells that out. But there's another concept of justice which we don't tend to think of and which is often called social justice, which is rather than being a criminal justice case, it's more a civil case, more the situation where you have two parties who are in dispute. Uh, might be a case of uh, somebody profiteering or somebody taking advantage of another person where it's not a criminal matter, it's a social matter, it's a civil matter. And it's in civil matters, we find in the Old Testament, that God is on the, is on the side of the weak. Imagine a situation where, where a, a, a poor individual person like you or me is profit is, is taken advantage of by a huge multinational corporation and we go to court to try and settle the matter. And you have a small country solicitor representing you. And when you turn up in court, the multinational corporation has three senior councils, each supported by five other councils. And the first thing they do is try and prolong matters so that it's gonna cost more and more money. Their aim being not to win the case, but simply to run you bankrupt so that you can't pursue the matter. This happens. I've been involved in the legal system. I see it happen. Justice in that case does not mean treating each party equally. Justice means recognising where true justice lies and treating the poor and the needy, the the vulnerable person, uh, with compassion and treating them that. We need to look with justice towards towards the the poor. Um, The term social justice warrior gets a lot of bad press in certain circles these days. We need to understand that the original social justice warrior is actually God. That's how he paints himself in the Bible. Now I know, yeah, I know. I know in some cases, people these days go too far. I'm not going to get into an argument about that. Certainly, it's true that the, you know that the small minority of people on the on that side go too far. But you know, that's more than balanced by the fact that the rest of us go far too short, right? God is the one on the side of the weak and the oppressed, the poor, the widow, and the alien. So be a person of justice. Don't follow the religious pack. Be like Jesus. I think I might have gone uh, and, oh, yes, you cannot live for the glory of God if you don't also live for others. It's not possible. Go back to the example of of Jesus and the Pharisees. What was the problem with the Pharisees? They showed justice and mercy, correct, they they, they got that right. Their first priority was God, yes, that was right. But you know, when it came to meeting our justice and mercy, they favoured their own type of people, right? They didn't favour the ones that God favoured, they didn't favour others. Our priority has to be God first, certainly, but others after that, right? it will hurt to to hand out justice and mercy in that way. But that has to be our priority if we are to show the glory of God, the goodness of God. Living for the glory, therefore, involves taking up a cross. You cannot live for the glory of God without being prepared to take up your cross and follow Jesus. When Jesus came to the world to show us the way, he chose to favour the needy. And as soon as he did, it became evident that there was only one destination on earth that he was headed for, and that was the cross. Because all of the powers that be, whether they be Roman or Jewish, were being crossed by him. Jesus went outside the camp, he went outside the religious pack in order to show the glory of God and we must do the same. <clears throat> okay, let's bring this to a head. I want to read a scripture which is so startling. Uh, yeah, go, go back, no, don't, don't bring it forward yet now. A scripture that is so startling, but I don't think I've ever heard it read... Heard it preached on before. In fact, the dominant theology, it's, a, it's the only time that the Apostle Paul talks about the, the, the final judgment. right? In all of his teaching, in all of his letters, the only time he actually mentions explicitly what happens on the final judgment. And what he says is so controversial that many Christians try and explain away by saying that that doesn't actually apply to believers. It only applies to, uh, to unbelievers. And I don't want to get into the argument, the theological argument about that. But I just want to say that even if that were is the case, what Paul says still says something about what God wants us to be like, um, what God's priorities are. And I don't actually think that it does uh, that. It does not apply. I believe it does apply to us because it sounds like it's a works mentality, but it's not actually. I don't believe. I think it's really simply a statement of what faith actually means. Let me read out the scripture and then we'll see how I I can explain it. It's taken from Romans chapter 2, and Paul says this, that on the day of God's wrath, when the righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Now, you see what I mean about being controversial? At first sound, it seems like he's saying that uh, we're going to be judged by whether we're sinful or not. We know that we're forgiven. But let's show this slide, and I'll tell you how I interpret this passage. Now, I believe Paul is talking very simply about two types of living which have a consequence. On the left hand side, we have what I call the way of true faith, right? The nice yellow, bright, glorious one. On the other side, we have what I call the way of idolatry or no faith. Uh, so on the right hand side, we, we have people who, who are not Christians at all, but also sadly, we have the situation for many who would call themselves Christians, but actually are not following the Lord. They're following their own, uh, their own idolatrous interpretation. So what are we saying? Well, in the first path, the question it asks is, what are you seeking? And on the left-hand side, Paul says, those who are seeking glory, honour and immortality. Now, if you believe that God is glorious, then you will be seeking glory, honour and immortality. That's an obvious consequence. And the second thing is, how do you therefore live? The answer is, if you are really seeking the God who is glorious we know that glory is associated with goodness, then you will persist in doing good. Now, notice what it says. It doesn't say perfection in doing good. It doesn't say that you'll never make a mistake. It says persistence. And what's persistence mean? It means that if you make a mistake, you pick yourself up, dust yourself down and go again. Why? Because that's your priority. No matter what the cost, no matter what the difficulty you encounter, you will persist in doing good. And if there's a blockage, if you find yourself falling short, then you say, I need to deal with that because that's a problem. It's stopping me from reaching my goal. Now, Paul says that if that's the way you live, if that's your faith, then the result will be eternal life. But what about the other side? If you're not seeking God's glory, if you're not seeking glory, honour and immortality, then you're seeking self. And sadly, in public life, in private life, there are many, many Christians who spend their time seeking self. I've known many, in my 40 years as a Christian, I've seen many, many people fall away from the faith and often their comment is that um, something along the lines of, oh, I prayed to God to do something in such a situation and it didn't work. It didn't work. God didn't, do, didn't come through and give me what I wanted. What are they saying? I was looking for something for myself and God didn't come through. Well, God does many, many things for us as individuals. But, you know, there comes a point where you have to realise that it's not about you, that it's not about me, right? And God has to take us to that point of saying, if you're looking to save your own life, you're going to lose it because love, which is what the gospel is all about, is all about putting other people first. It's not about seeking self first. So the people with this sort of uh, false faith... They are seeking self, looking after number one, and we all know the world says that we need to look after number one. What they don't tell us is that the Bible says, that if you're looking after number one, then your end is going to be wrath and anger. But as a result of that, you reject the truth because it becomes inconvenient, and you decide to follow evil because it's far more convenient to follow evil. And what Paul says is that the consequence of that is wrath and anger. Now, do you see where I'm going here? I don't believe that this is something that's incompatible with salvation by faith. I think it's actually simply stating what faith is. If you have real faith, you'll follow the left-hand path. If you're not following the left-hand path, then you need to question what your faith is. Are you truly following the God of glory? Are you truly following the God of the Bible? Or are you following an idol? Let's draw this to a close. As many of you know... My mother-in-law passed away recently, a lovely lady, and we buried her up in Sydney. Just two graves down from her gravesite, there, there was a tombstone to some person who I had no idea who they were. But the epitaph really sent shivers down my spine because you know what this person's epitaph said? After quoting a few scriptures, you know what it said on their, on their tombstone? It just said two words, mission... Accomplished. I don't know about you, but that's what I want to have on, as my epitaph. I'm here for a purpose. You're here for a purpose. I want to speak especially to the young people, but or, to all of us, but you know, you have your life in front of you. How will you live? Will you live for yourself? And there's plenty of things like for career, for relationships, for family. All of these sort of things are going to become important in your life. Or are you going to live for the glory of God? When you die, what's your epitaph going to be? Are you going to be able to sit there and say, God sent me here for a purpose, and I've achieved that? Not perfectly. I never did everything perfectly, but I persisted. What will your epitaph be? I'm not going to ask for a particular response, but we're going to play a worship song at the end. Um, One that we just sang a few moments ago. I want us to use that as a moment to consecrate yourself, not talking about what you're going to do in the next day or the next week, but how are you going to spend the rest of your life, whether it be one year or five years or 50 years? I know how I'm going to live my life. I'm going to live for the glory of God. What about you?